Amen. Amen. Oh, well, Merry Christmas. I guess good morning. Merry Christmas uh, to you all. Uh, so good to see you all here this morning. Go ahead and get your Bibles out. You can turn to Matthew 1. and We'll make our way there here in just uh, a moment. And uh, as mentioned last week, for the next few weeks, we're going to step away from the book of Acts. And uh, this Sunday, next Sunday, turn our attention, turn our focus towards uh, Christmas and uh, the coming of Christ and all that is entailed uh, in that is this really is a, uh, a substantial and significant time uh, for the followers of Jesus. If Jesus doesn't come, uh, you and I don't really have a whole lot to celebrate. Uh, the outlook is pretty bleak, uh, to be honest, and uh, we're probably not sitting here right now uh, if he hasn't come. So, uh, <clears throat> but the, the, the title of the Christmas series here for the next couple of weeks, this Sunday, next Sunday, and we'll uh, in the middle of that on Christmas Eve, uh, our Christmas Eve service is the hope of Christmas, uh, the hope of Christmas. And uh, for all of us, for all of us, there should be hope that is tied uh, to Christmas. And maybe even just begin to ask yourself this question, uh, what is it that you're hoping for this Christmas? Right, what is it that you're hoping for uh, this Christmas? My sense is probably most of the people in this room are past the point where you're hoping for a particular present. All right, that... Uh, uh, the, the, the little um, uh, BB gun in Christmas story, if that's you. Okay, you're probably past hoping for that. And uh, you're going to shoot your eye out anyway. That's why you're not getting it. And um, right, Most of us are past wanting a particular present or a particular gift or a particular thing. Though, I don't know, maybe some of you haven't grown out of that and you're still really, really uh, excited about that. But uh, maybe put it this way. If you're, if you're sitting here next week... And I were to say, hey, was Christmas a success? You would say, yes, it was because blank. And see, that would tell you what it is that you're hoping for. That would tell you what it is that you are longing for, anticipating, looking for this particular Christmas. Now, the truth is, the truth is all of us, we bring some expectation, some hope, some longing uh, with us towards Christmas. And, and you might be intrigued to know that really the way in which we approach Christmas time, I think, is uh, in a pretty similar fashion to the way that most Jews would have approached the whole of their life. You see, because when we, when we come at Christmas, when we look at Christmas, when we move towards Christmas, we do so with, with this longing, this hoping, this anticipation, and they did the same, except it wasn't around a get-together, it wasn't around a meal, it wasn't around presents, it was around a coming Savior that they longed for, one that had been promised, one that had, had been told that would come and right all the wrongs, that would fix all the brokenness. And so this longing, this anticipation, this angst that they waited for, the, this, the Messiah to come. So I don't think it's wrong for us uh, to approach Christmas time with this, this hope or this anticipation, right? And if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us, we come at it with some longing, some hope, some anticipation. But even in the church, right, even in the church, for far too many of us, the hope of Christmas is not tied to the person of Christ. It's, it's tied to, maybe for some of you, you're, you still really want that Red Ryder BB gun. It's some gift or whatever that thing is today. It's, it's time with family. It's hoping that I can recapture some sense, some feeling, some sentiment of Christmas past 
And that's really what I'm longing for, what I'm searching for, what I'm after. And we put place so much on the things around us to produce this sense of hope or satisfaction in, in, on things that they simply just can't do. And John Piper has a great quote talking about how we approach Christmas, how we come at these things. Piper says this. <clears throat> he says, The truth is that this melancholic moment might be the most poignant teaching moment of the whole season. Because as long as Christmas is pregnant with anticipation, the beautiful gifts remain unopened and feast and fun events are still ahead of us. And that's where we find ourselves here this morning. And all, all the joy, all the fun, all the excitement and anticipation of Christmas, are gonna, it's going to unfold for us here this week. And as long as that's still ahead of us, it can appear to be the hope that we're waiting for. He goes on, he says this, he says, but when the wrapping paper lies in tatters and, and the events are over and the guests are gone and the retail stores are setting up for Valentine's Day, we realize, listen, we realize that Christmas didn't deliver, deliver what we're really looking for, a happiness that doesn't end. Now listen to what he says next. I think this is incredibly profound. He says, surprisingly, this is how our Christmas celebrations might actually serve us best as pointers to, not providers of, lasting joy. Did you get that? That, that all the festivities, all the celebration, everything that we're going to go through this week, it, it's a good thing because it should point us to the one of everlasting joy. Not that we would attempt to make it the source of everlasting joy because it could never, ever do that. See, it's never meant to satisfy the, the, the festivities, the celebration, all the things that we do is never meant to satisfy. It was always meant to point us to the only one who could ever satisfy. And so as we come to Matthew 1, uh, the title of the message this morning is Hope Promised. Hope Promised. And God promised, in fact, years before Matthew ever wrote, um, millennia before Matthew ever wrote, God promised a particular hope for us. And that hope wasn't found in a place. It wasn't found in a position. It was found in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. And to put it succinctly, God made a promise to rescue his people. And as we come to the time of Christmas, we recognize that that time uh, has come. So let's do this. Let's take a moment. Let's uh, pray. Uh, as always, we'll pray for another church uh, in the area. And then uh, we'll take a look here at Matthew uh, chapter 1, why don't you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, as we come before you right now, God, we, uh, we thank you that, uh, that, that there's hope in you. God, that you made a promise, that you promised to come, that you promised to, um, to right the wrongs, uh, to reconcile us back to yourself. And Lord Jesus, for that, we say thank you. God, we pray that as we open your word that you would make that known to us, that we would recognize the truth and the reality of your promise that you've um, uh, given to us. God, not only for us, I pray for uh, Pastor Daniel Rose and for High Desert Church, and we pray for them that they would be living in the hope uh, and the promised hope uh, that you have put forth uh, for us this Christmas season and walking in that in a way that's fitting and right for you. And God, for us now as we uh, look at this chapter, would you uh, give uh, us and all of us an understanding? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear? Would your spirit have full control in our lives to teach us, to direct us, to guide us in all that you long for us to know and see? 
God, would we see the hope of Christmas? Would we see the hope that you've promised? Would we see it in the person of Jesus and would we respond appropriately to that? Lord, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you, and we pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here uh, this morning, and we're going to actually start in verse 1, and uh, you might be surprised to know if you know anything about Matthew 1 or you're starting to look. Uh, The first 17 verses of Matthew 1 contain a lot of names, most of which you and I can't pronounce very well, uh, a number of which we know very little or nothing about. Uh, And then starting in verse 18 is a story that all of us at some level are familiar with. Maybe we could recite it word uh, for word. And uh, maybe this is a an exercise in futility on my part, but we're going to spend almost the entirety of our time in the first 17 verses here this morning. And we'll just touch on uh, the last part of chapter one. That's where we'll spend uh, some time uh, on uh, Christmas Eve at our Christmas Eve service. Uh, but, I, but I want us to focus in uh, on uh, the genealogy because I think there's, there's a story here. Uh, well, I know there's a story here, but I think there's some substantial items that uh, when we consider Christmas, when we consider the coming of Christ and all that's entailed with that, that far too often we just overlook or unaware of or uh, don't seem to put as much uh, credence in uh, and, and probably uh, that we're wrong in doing so. And so I, I want to start, I'm, I'm not going to read through the list partly because there's some names in here that uh, I don't really know if I'm going to pronounce them correctly and you probably wouldn't know if I did or didn't anyway, uh, but I don't want to feel like a substitute teacher living in a foreign country saying a bunch of names that I'm uh, not saying right and uh, that would probably just honestly be boring for us to hear a bunch of names. Uh, but here's what I do want to do. I want to take a moment, I want to just uh, treat the entirety of this genealogy, draw out some observations for us to help frame it uh, for us to give us some understanding and then begin to walk through it uh, in, in, a, in a preaching sense, uh, if you will. And so we, we can make a number of observations about uh, this genealogy. I want to make three that kind of help frame it for us, but are also very applicable in terms of our lives. And uh, so three, uh, three observations uh, here. And, and understand as we look through this, that this is a, a lineage of Jesus that's written from a Jewish perspective to a Jewish perspective. And so when you go look at the genealogy in Luke, that's written to a Gentile perspective, which is why they go all the way back to Adam. Uh, Here, uh, Matthew will only take us back to Abraham because Abraham was uh, the father of uh, the Jews. And so that's the only, that's as far back as he needs to go. That's as far back as any of the Jews would really care uh, to go. Uh, But some observations to note, in fact, three of them here that I want you to see. Uh, Here's the first, look at verse 1. It says this, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then starting in verse 2, he begins to tell us about Abraham. In verse 6, he begins to tell us about David. And then all the way down in uh, verse 16, we see the first mention of Jesus in the genealogy. Uh, and the second mentions here in the book of Matthew. Here's the first observation, probably the most uh, prominent and important one, is as Matthew writes this, there is an emphasis on the covenants of God. What he has in the forefront is the promise of God. And the the promise that God made to Abraham, uh, the promise that God made to David, and it's going to be fulfilled in the person of Christ. And he breaks down the genealogy in this way. We'll get into more detail about that uh, here in a few moments. But here's what you got to know right here at the outset, that God wants us to know that the promise is always in view. What God always has in front of his people from the very beginning, even as he's walking through the history, the promise of God is in view. 
That, that, that's what he wants us to keep in the forefront. Okay, God made a promise. God made a promise, and it's going to play itself out through these various generations here. And that God is faithful to his promise. That the promise that God made to Abraham, the promise that God made uh, to David, the promises that God made to these other individuals, that God is going to be, uh, he's going to be faithful in seeing these through. And sometimes, right, sometimes we struggle with the promises of God and him being faithful to that. Sometimes it's hard for us to see that or to identify that. And yet here what he wants us to see is this truth. I think of, I think of what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 at the very end of his ministry. Paul told Timothy this. He says, <clears throat> says, the saying is trustworthy for if we've, speaking of Christ, he says, if we've died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And see, here it is. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Right, the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God. And so see that, you gotta see that here in this genealogy. It's the faithfulness of God that's playing out here, that the promises are in full view. Here's the second thing, second thing you got uh, to, to see or identify here. Um, I just wrote this down. I didn't know this actually until this week. I'd never seen this, uh, but I just wrote down the word younger brothers. Uh, younger brothers, and uh, what's interesting is as you look through this genealogy, a number of the men that are mentioned here are not the firstborn male in their family. Now you might go, big whoop, who cares? I'm not the firstborn male in my family and I'm better than my brothers. Um, I'm the firstborn male in my family and I'm better than my brothers. So it works in my family. All right, I don't know about your family. Uh, but uh, in Jewish, and I'm just kidding. I'm not better than both of my brothers, just one of them. Um, so... Uh, in, in Jewish understanding, in, in Jewish culture, the firstborn male was, was by and large the most prominent male in the family. In fact, so much so, do you know that when they would divide an inheritance, the firstborn male would take two-thirds of the entire inheritance, and the remaining third was split amongst all the other males. So if you had two brothers, it wasn't so bad, but you can imagine a family of like five, six, seven brothers, and they tended to have pretty big families. Okay, oldest male... Made out pretty well. Uh, the rest of them are dividing a fraction of what's left over. Now, part of that was a way to concentrate wealth, but part of that was tied to the fact of, of this emphasis on the firstborn male. And yet, as you start looking through this list, a number of the individuals on this list are not the oldest brother in their family. Jacob, Judah, David, he's kind of a big deal. Uh, Nathan and others, not the oldest. And you go, okay, well, what, what, what's, what's the big deal about this? Why would you mention that? Well, I think as we look at this in our own lives, part of what we begin to realize is it's not about being qualified. It's not about having the gifting. It's not about having the capacity. It's about God putting a calling on your life. And for so many of these young men, they could have easily said, well, I'm not the firstborn male, so there's not really a whole lot that I can do. I'm not as prominent. I'm not as special. I'm not as significant. That's for my older brother. And yet, it's not about being qualified, it's about being called. And I think about what, what God told, remember what God told Samuel when he was choosing David, right? The, the youngest of his brothers? He said, man looks at what? The outward appearance, right? Man's looking on the outside, he's looking at the giftedness, he's looking at the talent, he's looking at the capacity, but the Lord looks at the, he's looking at the heart. See, it's an obedience. Are you willing to be obedient? Are you willing to do what I'm calling you to do? 
It's not about whether or not you have the skills or the talent. It's about whether or not you're willing to follow and do the things that I'm calling you to do. And so we see these younger brothers here and God using them. And then finally this. Um, notice there are women mentioned here. And uh, not, not only were the uh, firstborn male, was, it, was, it, was that substantial, but probably uh, equally shocking, probably even more shocking, is that women are even mentioned in the genealogy. Uh, genealogies were always traced through the men uh, in Jewish society. And so the fact that any women are even mentioned here is nothing short of shocking, uh, much less the particular type of women that are mentioned in this genealogy. Verse 3, uh, there's Tamar. Uh, verse 5 is Rahab, uh, who was a prostitute. Uh, also in verse 5 we have Ruth. And then I love this, verse 6. Uh, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He won't even mention Bathsheba's name. He wants us to remind us of the super sketchy way that this woman came to be David's wife. Not exactly the highest character and of utmost moral repute of the women that are mentioned here. And fittingly, Mary will fit in with this group quite well because uh, she's going to arrive at the birth of the Savior in a way that looks pretty scandalous to the outside as well. Because uh, she's pregnant long before she ever gets married. And so we begin to look at the women here. I should note that Ruth, though, though Ruth certainly had noble character, Ruth wasn't even a Jew. And neither was Rahab. And so you start looking at this and you go, okay, okay, why, why is it that they would include these women? And, and they leave some pretty noble women out. Like, what, what is it that Matthew's after? I mean, does this guy just not care about women? Does he want to slam women? I think it's just the opposite, actually. I think it's because he values women. I think it's because he values women, even women with a past. And there's a great irony in our day that says uh, that to follow Jesus, to, to follow the scriptures, if you really believe all that the scriptures believe, that there's this diminished valuing of women. And I would say to you, name one person on the planet that's come even close to placing value on women the way that Jesus has. You won't even come close to that. But not, not, not only is that at play, um, but, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny to say this, and yet it's incredibly profound. Jesus comes from a family that has a ton of skeletons in the closet. I mean, think about this. His family is totally messed up and broken. Like, he, he didn't descend. He didn't descend on, like, golden pixie dust into the perfect place, into a perfect family with no issues. Jesus rolled into earth in a very broken family, just like you and I. See, he knows exactly, he knows exactly what it is to live in a messed up family because he comes from a totally messed up family. And so you look at this genealogy and you've got, You've got Jews and Gentiles, you've got men and women, you've got adulterers, you've got prostitutes, you've got a number of deadbeats, and you've got a few people in there that you're like, you know what, there's some decent character in that. And the commonality in all of it is that Jesus is going to be the savior of them all. But when you, when you, when you look at this, what you don't see is this glowing family history. You look at this list and you see issues and you see problems and you see shortcomings and you see a savior that comes from it. I so said, don't think, don't think that your struggles, your issues, your past puts you in a place where you're outside the reach of the hand of the Savior, that you're outside or beyond the realms of salvation. You're right in the middle of what Jesus was born into and what Jesus wants to move and work in. 
And so with that kind of as a framework and an understanding of what's, what's happening here, let's just begin now to, uh, to walk through the passage. Um, three things here. We talk about hope promised. Three things here in the text that I want us to touch on. And I want to start in verse 1 here. Here's the first thing that we see uh, that it was promised from the beginning. Okay, hope was promised from the beginning. It says this. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, interesting, that word uh, genealogy there. Um, might, might seem kind of innocent or innocuous to us, might not necessarily think of um, beginnings, uh, but, but in, in the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that's used here in Matthew 1 is the same word that's used in the first part of, uh, of the book of Genesis. And so Matthew 1 really has a very similar effect on the reader uh, as, as John, was, John 1 has. In the beginning was the word, and you think, oh, beginning, right? And you go back to, you're thinking back to the creation account, and that's that it's a similar effect that Matthew's creating here. And, and, and the, the original readers of this would have read this, and their minds would have instantly gone back to, wait, he's talking about the beginning. He's talking about creation. He's not talking about Jesus being created. But he's talking about the beginning of mankind and the creation of humanity and this huge history that's unfolding here. And so we, we can't read this solely in the sense of, well, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago in a Middle Eastern context. We've got to see this in the, in the broader picture of what it is. It's the whole of human history that's unfolding here. And that it was promised from the very beginning that hope was promised, that a hope was given from the very beginning. And we know, right, we know for a fact that it was promised from the very beginning. Because you remember in Genesis 3, right, Adam and Eve sin. And I love this, before God ever even speaks to them, while in their presence and in their hearing, knowing full well what he's saying, as he speaks to the serpent, what's he telling them? He's saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to make this right. I'm going to solve this. I'm going to reconcile this. I'm going to redeem this. Before he ever comes to Adam and Eve and says, okay, um, things are going to get rough, all right? And there's going to be consequences and it's going to be kind of miserable. He's already made a way. He's already made a provision. There's already a hope of the promise that exists there. And so from the very beginning here in Matthew 1, he's, he's, he's cluing us into, he's pointing us towards this beginning. See, Jesus wasn't plan B. Jesus wasn't plan C. He's always been plan A from the very beginning. And sometimes, sometimes, sometimes I think we think that wasn't really the case. Before, but before God ever spoke the universe into existence, he knew full well this is the way that it was going to unfold. And that hope right, that was promised from the beginning, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then he connects that with two individuals, the son of David and the son of Abraham. So let's talk about these two guys here for a moment. I'm going to start with Abraham because chronologically Abraham is further back. And really he starts with Abraham, the son of Abraham. And he starts there because that's where the Jews would have started. That was the place that they went to. And you think about the birth of the Jewish nation. You go to, right, Father Abraham. Remember singing that song in, in Sunday school, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And then you start doing weird motions that make no sense with the song. I don't know why you're marching or bobbing your head. Like, what does that have to do with having kids? I have no idea. All right? But that, that, apparently that's, that, that's, you know, to get the wiggles out of kids, or I don't know. But right, Father Abraham. Okay, he's the father. 
And I, I got to tell you, as a kid, I was always so confused by that. I'm like, the guy can't have kids. And we're talking about how all of us are his kids. I don't get it because you got to let the rest of the story play out. Right? That's the promise came through him. The promise came through him. And in fact, in Genesis 12, God uh, told Abraham this. He said, now the Lord said to Abram, before he had changed his name to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and on him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And then check this out right here. And in you, he's referring to his seed, to his descendants, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From you, one is coming that every nation will be blessed by. And then 10 chapters later in Genesis 22, he says the same thing. He says, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He's saying, listen, listen, one is coming, one is coming from you who will be a phenomenal blessing to the entirety of mankind. And we know, we know in Exodus, one of the ways that 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 blessing was going to manifest itself was that the nation of Israel was was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be the go-between between between, um, uh, God and mankind. And of course, they uh, really struggled with that responsibility. And now the church uh, has been tasked with that. Uh, But we think of Abraham, the son of Abraham, Jesus is the son of the promise. That's what God is really telling us here. He's the son of the promise. Now think about this for a moment. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Put yourself in the shoes of those who would read that. And, and we think of Abraham like, good guy, um, pretty cool promise that he had. And that's kind of where we stop with him. A Jew would see that name and everything is wrapped up in that. And that's the father. That's where the promise came. All the nations of the earth, man, that's a big, big deal. So think about that for a moment. Try to put yourself in in his shoes. From you, if you're pregnant or you just had a baby, you can imagine if if God was saying this to you, hey, your kid, one of your kids, one of your descendants is going to bless the entire universe. Every nation is going to be blessed by one of your children. Now, plenty of parents think that, okay? But it's, it's one thing for mom and dad to think that. It's another thing for God himself to tell you that. From you, one is coming who will be a blessing to all nations. That was the promise. That was the promise. That he would have a child that would bless the world and would ultimately save you and I from our sin. And so, so in verses 2 through 6, we, we, we see that. It moves us from Abraham to this guy named David. Right? And in, in, in uh, verse 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, uh, the son of David... The promise that came to David, uh, we see it in a number of places in the scriptures. I think probably the clearest place is 2 Samuel 7. Uh, God says this, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come, out, who, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And you're like, well, wait, that's Solomon. He's talking about Solomon. No, he's not, because look what he says next. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's like, listen, from the line of David, a king is going to come. A throne is going to be established that's going to rule forever. Now, don't miss the fact, don't miss the fact that from the very beginning, God has had a very specific plan to rescue and redeem his people. And the promise came to Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. The promise came to David, uh, through you, there's going to be an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. 
And so when you see son of David, son of Abraham, any Jewish reader, man, they'd go right to those places. They would know those things. And then Matthew begins to write, and he begins to tell us about all of the different people. And so notice, not only was the, that whole promise from the beginning, notice then this, and really throughout the entirety of the genealogy, we see this truth playing out. It was promised throughout generations. It was promised throughout generations. So uh, from starting in verse 2, moving through uh, the end of verse 15, we have all these different names, all these different generations uh, that unfolded over centuries and centuries of Israel's history. Uh, Verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then Matthew tells us this. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, um, we know that it didn't really break out that cleanly. It wasn't 14 generations in each of those time frames. Okay, what Matthew is after here is not mathematical precision. Okay, he's after a literary device to help us uh, memorize or, or for the reader to know or to, to see the symmetry that's playing out uh, here in these, uh, th- these different time periods. When we think about hope promised, what we see here is we see a promise throughout the generations. And you start thinking about these people and you think about the hope and the longing and, and what God had promised. And how many times... How many times do you think in the lives of these different individuals where they began to go, God, hey, when, when is this going to come to fruition? When is this going to come to pass? When are we going to see this promise fulfilled? See, because each of the names that are listed here, and for the others that aren't even listed here, they represent an entire generation of people that lived waiting for the fulfillment of the promises of God wondering, waiting, God, when, God, how much longer, God, are you doing this? And so no doubt, right, no doubt that there's a longing, an anxiety, a hoping to see God move and work, to see the fullness of these promises fulfilled and restored. And so what what Matthew is really doing here is he's unfolding the story throughout history. Now put yourself, put yourself in the shoes of someone who's reading this. Abraham, uh, roughly 17, 1800 years prior to when you'd be reading this. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations. Now let's just begin to walk through Israel's history for a moment. Um, At what point in time were they ever a blessing to any of the nations up until that point? I mean, you you, you could make an argument that occasionally they were a a quasi-blessing to a nation or part of a nation, but that's about as far as you could go with that. Not really knocking that one out of the park. Okay, well, the, the eternal kingdom, the eternal throne that started with David. Wait, you mean the kingdom that two generations later was divided and they fought with each other? You mean the kingdom that as you move further down the line, it's not even a kingdom anymore. They've been deported, taken out of their land, living in a foreign land. And then, and then, and then you consider that, 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 that roughly 400 years of silence that you, you have at best semi-autonomous rule. You're really being ruled by foreigners. You've got massive issues in the nation, and God himself is virtually silent. Where are the promises of God? Where is the fulfillment of the blessing of all nations? Where where is the eternal throne? Where is the eternal kingdom? Where is that? And that, in that silence, in that darkness, 
in that desperation is the moment that Christ breaks through. See, that's when Jesus comes bursting through. And I love, I love how Matthew writes this. Look at verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It really should say, now the birth of the Christ took place in this way. Right, we've talked about this. Jesus is Jesus' name. It's his given name. It's like Mike or Tom or Jim or Bill. Okay, that's his name. Christ is a title. It's not his last name. Okay, it's not Smith or Rodriguez or Hernandez. It's a title. It, it means Messiah, Savior, King, Ruler. Now, the birth of the Christ took place in this way. And this whole history, generation after generation after generation, waiting, 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 God, where are you? And then as Matthew writes, now the birth of the Savior took place in this way. Boom, here I am. I'm right here. I'm right here. Promised throughout generations. I loved, I loved this uh, quote that I came across. I don't even know who said it. I don't even think it was quoted where I had read it, but it says this. It says, Delays of promised mercies, though they exercise our patience, do not weaken God's promises. Let me say that again. Delays of promised mercies, though they exercise our patience, do not weaken God's promises. See, the hope, the hope that was promised, it was promised throughout each and every generation. Every generation knew it. Every generation saw it. Maybe not in fullness, not completed, but reminded of it. And the time that it comes, the time that it's ultimately fulfilled, where it'll make full sense. Now see, some of us, maybe many of us, we, we look around at the world around us today, stripped of the promises of God, stripped of the whole of the picture of God. And we go, the world's falling apart. It's terrible. It's horrible. Jesus isn't really on the throne. We're never going to survive. It's hopeless. Okay, well, you, you're, you have a very short-sighted view, first of all. Um, and second of all, I don't want to sound cold in saying this. You're not the first generation to feel that way. We're not the first generation to feel that way. We're simply the latest generation to feel that way. Uh, you could probably contest that every generation at some point in time has felt that, has wrestled with that, has wondered that. God, where are you? Where's the fullness of the promise? God, why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you moving? Why aren't you working? Why aren't you redeeming in this? And really, the distinction of us today in this genealogy that we see here in Matthew 1 is not that we're waiting for his arrival. We're simply waiting for his return. We have the benefit of knowing that he's actually come. So he hadn't come for them. It really was an angst of, God, are you really going to come? Is this really going to happen? Is this really going to play out? See, we know that he's come. We have the spirit that dwells inside of us. They just lived in that ambiguity. We're simply waiting for him to return. So in that, certainly we can identify with these previous generations. Hope promised. It was promised from the beginning. It's been promised throughout generation. Uh, generations, And then finally this, I just want to take a moment here in these last few verses. A promise to save from sin. See, that was the promise. Right? The promise wasn't political rule. Uh, the promise wasn't some fairy tale ending. The promise was that we would be saved from sin. Now the birth of the Christ, the birth of the Savior took place in this way. And then Matthew begins to um, 
detail for us Joseph's encounter with the angel. Luke details Mary's encounter with uh, the angel. It says this, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her uh, to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. See, here it is. For he will save his people from their sins. See, that's the promise. That's the promise, that he's going to come and he's going to save his people from his sins. Hey, Joseph, I know it's kind of weird. I know it's kind of different. Maybe kind of hard for you to understand. Um, Mary's pregnant with a gift from God, literally. And so I need you just to hang on here, and I need you to be faithful. I need you to walk down the road. You name him Jesus. And he's, <clears throat> he's going to save his people from their sins. He's going to save his people from their sins. He's going to redeem. He's going to restore. He's going to reconcile. He's going to take what's broken. And he's going to fix it. And I think probably all of us, one of the first things we do is like, okay, how's he going to do this? Matthew's on the ball. He's, he's ahead of us. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then here in verse 23, quoting from Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. How's God going to do it? Uh, he's going to come be with us. He's going to be incarnate. He's going to veil his deity and divinity with flesh. And he's going to live with us. He's going to walk with us. He's going to suffer with us. And eventually, he's not going to die with us. He's going to die for us. That's how he's going to do this. That's how he's going to save his people from their sins. See, this is the hope that we have in the promise. This is where the longing and the desire is found. That King Jesus would come as a baby, that he would live amongst us, that he would take on flesh, that he would take on the fullness of humanity and die for us in our place, taking your place, my place, our rightful place on the cross. And see, in that, in that, that's the great hope that we have. It's not tied to a tree or to gifts or to some turkey or ham or pozole or whatever it is that we're going to eat this week. It's tied to an eternity that is secure. It's tied to an eternity that can be known and can be trusted. It's tied to forever because of Christ's sacrifice in your place and in my place. That's where the hope is. And it's not, okay, right, we, we, we make Christmas, we make Christmas about Jesus as a baby, and I get that that's where he came, and like, oh, sweet little baby Jesus, and we love him, and we have our cute little manger scenes. But, but I, I want us to see it as more than just, he, he was a baby 2,000 years ago. He's not a baby today, all right? And the next time that you and I see him, I ain't gonna look anything like a baby. He's riding a horse, and, and he's, he is a terrifying warrior with a sword coming. He sheathes his sword in his mouth. All right? That's how bad he is. But that's the hope that we have. That he's going to conquer it all. So you think about the hope promised. The hope promised. Promised from the very beginning. 
It's been promised throughout each and every generation. Now, I would love, I would love if like right now, the, youth, the, the, the roof just ripped off this place and Jesus came back. That'd be a pretty fitting end to any message, by the way. I'd love to go out like that. Wouldn't that be amazing? Like into the sermon, boom, Jesus comes back and then we're gone. That'd be fantastic. Probably not gonna happen, okay? But if it did, I would totally be, I'd be all for whenever he chooses to come back. There's a very real possibility that we won't live to see his return. We may, we may not. And so like every generation before us, we hope, we long for, we, we trust in that. And if God so chooses that we're one of the select few that get to see that, this side of eternity, then we praise God for that. And if not, if not, our promise is fixed on an eternity that's sure. Because it's tied to a savior that is sure. And in that, and in that, and in that, that's the hope that we cling to. Not just around Christmas time, but God help us that we would cling to that throughout all of time. Pray with me.